Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Ship It and Sip It. I'm here today on Friday afternoon with Natalia Puzakova, who is our Head of Quality Assurance at Paralect. And I'm excited to talk to you because I haven't had any QAs on the show yet. So today we get to talk all about what QA is, why it's important, and your role in building the QA team into a better, more productive, more positive force for Paralect. Thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Inviting. How's your week? Uh, it was good and very fast. <laughs> good. So it's like Monday and today it's already Friday. Perfect. Well, I'm glad you took some time to join us. Tell us a little bit about this wine. You recently returned from Georgia. So again, we have a Georgian red wine. Yes. Um, I have not tried this one. What, what, what can you say about it? Uh, I can say that it should be a bit different from the one that Xenia brought. The Saparavi? Yeah, it yeah. was uh, um, probably not, not so sweet. Uh, and also, so I was in batch three in our Georgian workation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we with the guys really loved this wine. So like currently we're searching for it in our stores in Minsk already. Right. So this one is uh, bought in Minsk, but that, that's exactly the same wine that we really loved in Georgia. Super, well, I'm excited to try it. Yeah. Mm. That's lovely. Yeah. Very, very... Very vibrant, a little bit sweeter than the Saparavi. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. How was the work experience there? Um, what, what reflections do you have of your time working and living there? And would you do it again? Uh, yes, I will start from the my last question. I think I would do it again. It was fun. Uh, we hang out a lot of time with my colleagues. So yeah, it was it was fun, it was maybe a bit hard because you like have no time to stop, but yeah. For two weeks it was yeah, definitely yeah, it worth was like uh, non-stop of work and uh, going out. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next location. We're thinking about doing a sort of internal pitch competition for the next location. This is semi-secret, mm -hmm. but I'll share it with everyone anyway. <laughs> um, spoilers. Spoilers. So we would like to do this again, uh, either in Georgia again, because we already have the connections and we have mm -hmm. a good place and it would be rather simple logistically or in some other location that's hopefully warm and sunny as well. So uh, what would you suggest? Do you have any locations in mind? Uh, well, I, I think I, I, like, I, I like any country, so mm -hmm. I like traveling. Uh, if we speak about something sunny, so the, the first thing that comes to my mind of course is Thailand because mm. it's sunny, it's warm, nice weather, great food. Uh, the only probably difficulty is that it's plus four hours, so it may be a bit, you know, not comfortable. In, in like if you work with other people, for example, in Minsk or maybe yeah. like in other countries. Well, maybe Turkey, why not? It's also super comfortable country in terms of living, like the food also very, very good. Um, it's also sunny in, in summer and in the, in the autumn as well. So. Sure, yeah. Another country I have yet to visit, I would love to go. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about the quality assurance team at Paralect. First and the most basic, how many QAs do we have within Paralect? And could you tell us on average, like uh, how many how many QAs are on each product team and does it depend on sort of the stage of the product or what other factors? Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, I will say that we have 25 people in the team. Uh, we just received uh, another like yes uh, from, from hiring. So we're expecting one more person and to join our team. Uh, and that's going to be 25 in total. Um, regarding the products and project sizes, so I would say that for startups, uh, this is usually a small team, mm-hmm. you know, like two or three developers, business analyst, project manager, designer, and that's usually one uh, case specialist. Uh, but when the project starts growing bigger and bigger, obviously you need more quality assurance engineers in the team. And uh, like we gradually add in more engineers. I would say that the normal or usual ratio between developers and key engineers is like three, four uh, developers per one key engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, yeah, uh, if we speak about startups, that's usually one key engineer in the team. If that's uh, something bigger, that can be two, three. And on our largest project, uh, like we recently had like 10 key engineers. Mm-hmm. So that's like the biggest number. Right. And that's on, a, on our big health tech product. Yeah. So in, in cases like that, and you came from you spent a lot of years working on a larger fintech team as well so in health tech and in fintech is there a need for more qa engineers just because it's a more complex business there are more regulations safety is more vital Mm, yeah maybe maybe in some way but i can say that uh, there's like a lot of difference so I, I don't think like there were like extra key engineers because of that stuff it's just maybe the level of uh, like uh, specialists should be probably higher because mm-hmm. of the difficulties on the project and because of its complexity mm-hmm. uh, so yeah all right uh, you wrote a lovely blog post for our blog about why QAs are so very necessary and maybe we'll just start with that because it seems like the QA role is sort of the, the, the unsung hero of, of product development. So you said in that blog post, very often, especially on large projects, QAs are the engineers who know the product better than anyone else. Um, so could you expand on that and maybe just give us an overview of why you think that's true? Mm-hmm. Well, the first reason I think uh, because we are like hunting dogs and we're putting our noses in like every corner of the project. Uh, so maybe at first people, like especially maybe developers, uh, get a bit frustrated when you know, like you come to them and ask, hmm, what's this column is doing in the database? Like uh, why it's like uh, made like that, <laughs> no, not, not like this, why mm-hmm. like, I don't know. The maximum length is 255 or something like that. But that's not because we're like uh, bad people. No. <laughs> it's just because we want to know like different details of the implementation that will help us 
to search for issues better. So we know like a lot of information here, but at the same time we know a lot of from the business side because mm -hmm. we should uh, test like we are real users, you know, that the product will be actually uh, user-friendly for our end customers. So like we are combining like these two sides, like knowing about implementation, knowing about like business side of the product, and that's a very good mix. And uh, here I should say that I'm more like um, advocate for a model where key engineers uh, are not assigned to a specific, for example, module or area of the system, mm -hmm. but uh, rather to a model where key engineers like they work on, on any feature in any area of the application. Uh, so of course, in such case, you need to know everything. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of one of the main points you had in this post you wrote and that was about exploratory QA yeah. and and there wasn't very much written about it and I don't really I I understand the concept in my head um, but could you give us sort of a little bit more depth on on what you mean by that and I guess how much time or, or attention should be given by the QA team to exploratory QA in, mm -hmm. in a given project? Well, I would say that it can be like up to 50% or even more. It all depends also a bit of the experience of the key engineer. Uh, probably for like um, freshmen, yeah, you know, for uh, junior case it can be a bit hard and probably for them it's better to have some scripted tests that mm -hmm. they can just follow and maybe a bit uh, think of outside of the scripts. But for probably more experienced uh, guys, uh, it's technique that they use probably daily uh, and it helps to solve uh, difficult uh, questions. So it helps you to find untrivial issues in the application or to explore uh, some paths in the application because uh, obviously, if it's simple, uh, some product, it's pretty pretty easy to like describe all the flows, uh, describe how everything works, and just to test it. But if it's getting bigger and bigger and more complex, like uh, I don't know, like cards testing, so mm -hmm. it's you know it's blowing up your mind how to test it uh, in real life. And of course, in this way, you need to explore like product, explore how like third party work. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's why this technique is really valuable. Super. Thank you for opening our eyes to that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about your experience on the FinTech project that you were working on for a while. Could you just sort of paint the picture um, for us at what sort of level were you at professionally when you joined that team? How long did you spend there? And what are some of the major things that you learned by working on, on um, Intergyro? Mm -hmm. Well, I joined it, I think I was maybe like, you know, middle, but not a strong middle engineer. And of course, I've learned uh, really a lot on this project. I spent there about probably three, four years. So it's been a really long time from, mm -hmm. the, from the very start, where like, almost nothing was there to you know, 
to when it's become really, really big product and it was uh, live for some time. Yeah. Uh, so regarding experience, um, well, I think I've, I've um, improved my skills like in every area, starting from um, domain knowledge because you know there there's a lot of complexity in fintech in integrations with different third parties uh, which is can be really I don't know, annoying challenging at the same time um, plus in like my last year we were making integration with the mastercard and mm -hmm. it also was like another big big challenge uh, mm -hmm. because you know like you never tested um, like cards, our physical cards that we pay in any store, and you need to think like um, how how to do it. Like you faced something for the first time, and there were like a lot of such moments when you're doing something for the first time, like you're doing some payment integration for the first time, and it's like. Uh, very like nervous. <laughs> you don't know again like how to do it, uh, where to run, who to ask. Nobody understands what's going on. Like uh, there are so many exceptions. Uh, you know, like when you're even looking at the API of any like payment gateway, it seems like straightforward for the like at first glance. But then you understand there are hmm, a lot of hidden behind. Right, right. It it strikes me that. I don't know. I mean, you know better than anyone else that modern fintech apps and products are very have become very complicated. There are so many different integrations: Stripe, PayPal, yeah. now crypto stuff. You know, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. It's crazy. I don't, I don't know how it uh, how it all works because after like working with a few integrations, I understand that. None of them is perfect. Right. All of them have their drawbacks, or sometimes it seems like it's made of sticks and stones. <laughs> so, you know, I, d I don't feel comfortable when paying, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the store. And also, we, when we were already like testing our cards, it were uh, virtual car cards, and I was, of course, we were trying to pay in different like online stores and etc. etc. And I found, uh, together of course with our uh, developers, um, issue on the side of our some Belarusian payment gateway. Right. <laughs> it wasn't like super critical, but still it was an issue in their like logic of implementation that's a bit uh, wrong, you know, according to Mastercard rules. Right. It was funny because I tried to call them <laughs> on their support, but nobody... I found a bug for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I called them and I thought, like, um, I will tell them, you know, how something is wrong on their site, but nobody took, you know, phone and, you know, it was um, too much time to, to write them, you know, big letter and, right. you know, all this stuff. All right, so... That uh, product grew and grew into like a, a multinational team. There was there was a team here in Minsk. There's also a team in yeah in, in Lisbon. In Lisbon, guys, yeah. yeah. In uh, Sweden. Yeah, and and eventually they moved the the whole development operation in house mm -hmm. um, and, and left the partnership with Parallax. But I can assume that we were very happy to have the experience. We're very happy that you had the experience to learn there and grow there professionally. 
and grow into the leader of the QA department. But we have a few different clients that are thinking about launching a, a brand new from scratch fintech product. Uh, what sort of advice would you give them in terms of uh, with an eye to quality and mm -hmm. what they should, what the team should do to make sure that down the line, when it is a larger team, when it is, there are more integrations, that the quality is there in the product. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the first advice, but it actually can be applied to any project, is that you should find a very, a very good team, and you should probably invest building a strong relationship inside the team and their communication because that's uh, really important and if you have like a uh, good team with good communication they can solve anything I, I would say so um, from the point of uh, fintech projects I would say uh, just guys search for a good DevOps hi <laughs> <Sure, sure. laughs> Uh, yeah, because um, maybe on like first stage when it's just MVP, it's not so important. But later on, with all those decides as compliances and all this creepy stuff, how you should store like user data, how it should be protected, uh, I would say that um, you should think in advance about uh, some sort of um, testing production, especially everything that's related to money and. If it's fintech, it's obviously related uh, to some money operations, and yeah, you should think like where to get those money, like that you're gonna use for testing, how you're gonna make transfers, um, what cards you're gonna use, because um, again, we're in Belarus, and it can be a bit, a bit difficult. It depends again on the application. Mm -hmm. And I would also say that it's important to um, probably have some monitoring, even maybe from the almost from the beginning, maybe not super like uh, complicated, but still something that uh, will help you to monitor production and again those um, money operations. Um, maybe some sort of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Also, you should really. Uh, like look carefully <laughs> what's going on in production with money and uh, that you received what you supposed to receive and, and so on because uh, in the end you should as a like a business owner you should be responsible with some regulators mm -hmm. like in the country where the business is registered and they are checking all this stuff so another uh, recent blog post was added from the QA team from Peter mm -hmm. and he wrote about um, when when you should start uh, automated QA testing. So I guess since we're talking about new products and starting from scratch, now would be a good time to sort of lay out a framework of at what point should you move your product team from mostly or all manual testing to adding automated testing. When does that become critical? When does it really save the, the founder and the team time and money on, on mm -hmm. testing their product? Well, obviously you shouldn't start it like from the very beginning because you know, there, there's no point. Usually everything is changing so fast that you just will waste your time mm -hmm. for building Autodesk and spending like, efforts for it. Um, probably when you already have some core functionality, usually that's maybe 
after a year of like you have a product and when it's already in production so obviously you have some core functionality that probably won't change too much and that's a good start um, for auto testing you know to to begin with some uh, most critical use of user flows and um, usually at that time you already have regression testing pretty pretty big pretty large and it takes a lot of time mm -hmm. so it also makes sense to automate regression testing and save your time and efforts all right thank you uh, one question that i got um, from our frequently asked questions that founders ask to our business development team is uh, why does a product still have bugs after it's gone through testing with the QA on my team? Um, oh, well, that's my favorite, probably. Um, why can't you kill all the bugs? Every um, last one of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's impossible. I'm sorry to say that. Sorry, right. guys, clients, that, that's impossible to have uh, like product without issues. And even if uh, we look at some super cool products like Apple. I mean, Facebook was down for like yeah, half a day Facebook, last yeah, week. Facebook was down. So it's, it's inevitable. So sooner or later, you will have uh, some issues, even if you're like trying to fix all of them when you release them. But uh, I would say that the general approach that even when we are releasing some build, it's already have some backlog of issues. Mm -hmm. Just because they are not really harmful, you know, they, they don't impact a lot of the product. And, um, you know, you also always need to, um, like, find a balance between, like, number of issues and, uh, like, time mm -hmm. that you want to go on production because uh, the more issues you want to fix and the later you're going to be in production right. and uh, if we like exaggerate this situation then you can you know um, go to production like two years later when nobody already needs your product mm -hmm. so okay uh, that sort of brings up a, another question that I had and that I, I hear some technical founders talk about technical debt, uh, or they write an article about technical debt. Technical debt is okay. Technical debt is terrible. It will slow your team down later. There are a lot of opinions about this. So are, are, is that backlog uh, of possible problems or real problems the same thing as technical debt? And, and what is the QA role in reducing technical debt? Or is that just something that the developers make and you don't worry about it? Uh, no, I, I think that good kids always worry about the technical debt. And yeah, in some parts, like backlog of issues and technical debt, they like somehow meet each other. Um, like in simple words, I would say that technical debt, like from user perspective, is that you have like working feature and it seems like fine but actually <laughs> inside everything is terrible like it's like i said it's built of sticks and stones yeah and uh, just one uh, small change will can broke it all mm -hmm. uh, and uh, well issue is something that's working incorrectly or it's not working at all uh, so yeah i would say that uh, our responsibility also includes trying to reduce this uh, 
technical debt, but uh, of course we not going and fixing it yeah. <laughs> and not coding it. While testing, we do a lot of analytical work and we're like analyze requirements. We usually like have different meetings, so like groomings with BA team, with development team. And we are like um, telling them, hey, look, this is probably won't be a good fit for, for example, for this feature because, and we have like usually a number of arguments why it's not going to be a good feature. And part of them is because uh, like we know what's and how it's implemented and we can, uh, you know, uh, foresee a bit of future that it's going to be a, something bad for application. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, also we like suggest different improvements. Like, look, this is not very like comfortable user flow. It's maybe too long, or um, I don't know, not not so user friendly. It's unclear. Like, what's the next step? Let's change it like that or like that. Mm-hmm. And that's also part of uh, reducing like technical debt in terms that we're. Uh, trying to to avoid you know some bad decisions right that's an interesting uh dynamic that that you're you're bringing up because i'm always curious um just about the actual way the work gets done within the team so who do you inter- who do you guys interface with when you have these problems and who maybe you already mentioned the ba team and the developers um but how do you come to consensus when, say, the, the product owner or the founder uh, wants a feature, the BA team sort of see, builds the logic for that feature, so they're, they're sort of behind that idea, and you guys see, see potential problems with that. How do you find a middle road there, and what does that process sort of look like of solving that conflict mm-hmm. within the team. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, this is what includes a lot of communication because mm-hmm. you should communicate with lots of people. So, uh, usually, business analysts they like showing and describing what we're planning to do, what the new feature should look like, should work like, and during this meeting, we already can, you know come up with some ideas and, you know, make some notes like, uh, look, uh, you haven't thought maybe about this flow or this, usually this is edge cases, <laughs> you know, you haven't thought about this edge case or like how we're going to do this stuff because, you know, we have uh, this hidden hidden rocks <laughs> in the mm-hmm. water and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a lot of communication and, uh, you know, p- part of the notes uh, business analysts usually receive from development team if there are, you know, some constraints from the implementation side or, you know, some maybe difficulties and maybe it's better to do something in other way. Mm-hmm. Maybe we haven't thought, you know, of some maybe best practices or we haven't thought about the future because you know it's it's great to have um, architect on the project because he usually he thinks not about the not only about the current moment but how the product will evolve eventually mm-hmm. into something bigger and um, maybe besides the groomings that's that's usually just you know one-on-one meetings just 
meeting together in some room and we were just you know sitting and brainstorming together like how it's better to do this feature you know that everyone is happy you right. know, that development is happy uh, like uh, product owners are happy and like we are happy right yeah, and that brings us to the point another thing that you mentioned in uh, your blog post was that, that the quality assurance team helps to improve product quality with our professional pessimism. Um, so pessimism is usually seen as a bad thing. You mm -hmm. don't read in, in, in startup blog posts, you don't read about how my project was awesome because we had pessimistic people on the team, right? It's not a very common theme in this world. So, um, but it sounds like from what you described that, that you guys do have to spend a lot of your time raising things that you think might cause problems. Mm -hmm, yeah. So it's inherently sort of negative. Yeah, it's kind uh, of criticism. Yeah, yeah. So how do you guys, in, how do you in the team environment keep sort of a positive, you know, startup, everything's great mentality when your job is to, to raise negative issues all the time? Well, I think it depends again on the relationship uh, inside of your team, uh, because if everyone understands that it's not something that you're just uh, trying to, I don't know, to tell like developer that he's he's done something wrong or right. like he, uh, I don't know, he sucks or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is, it's it's not like pointed at him. It's just uh, you know. A process of trying to make a product better mm -hmm. uh, so then there is no problem and if uh, you know people think that it's pointed you know at them then then it's uh, yeah it can be hard right. um, but actually about professional pessimism I uh, read in ICQB syllabus so it's not something that I came up with right. and uh, it was about uh, you know testers mindset so mm -hmm. when you have like uh, testers in the team their mindset uh, should be like professional about professional pessimists they should be like a bit of critics right. it's like they are professional traits and like for example if we take a look at the developers uh, they like on the opposite side, so they are building something from you know from scratch. They are creators, and their approach and their mindset is a bit different. Mm -hmm. And so this mix of two different mindsets, it's kind of it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, it's necessary. It reminds me a lot of like you know being a writer and having a really good editor. Mm -hmm. so yeah, you, yeah, you've yeah got it's, it's different, you know, you can't uh, blame your editor, right. you know, for uh, well, there finding, can be, finding your mistakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess there can be unprofessional editors that just say, hey, what is this shit you're writing? <laughs> and there can be unprofessional QAs that say, hey, developer, this code is trash, go, uh, go home. Yeah. <laughs> so being a professional pessimist is definitely the better way to go. Say we have a new project, it's a small team, there's one QA there. Uh, how do you help that person just feel supported? What, what ways can they ask other QAs for help or learn from each other so that they don't feel alone on that team and like alone with the problems that they have? 
Well, I hope nobody <laughs> feels alone on the project, and usually all the like you know people on the on your project are really helping, mm -hmm. including again VAs, uh, dev team, PM. Uh, but I think that the main support comes from the mentor that is you know like assigned uh, to to a new person, and usually mentor. Uh, helps uh, with like a lot of questions that usually arise, you know, for the first maybe two three months, mm -hmm. and you know, like he's trying to guide you through all these processes, how how to build, what to do on the project, and stuff like that. Um, of course, we you know we can mingle with each other, and we have like a separate channel for a case where we can also ask questions and you know share something about our projects share our knowledge um, plus we have uh, k talks and meetups also we're trying to share like our expertise it seems like qa is a sort of the foot in the door to to working in tech um, and on all of our vacancy pages we write that Paralect is a place where you can grow your career you can increase your knowledge, you can uh, become, you know, move up into mm -hmm. a, a bigger and better role or opportunity within the company. So what does that sort of progression possibly look like for QAs? Do they just become a really, really good QA or do they get into project management if they really like people? Or do they become and then eventually made maybe product management if they like the product side of things mm -hmm. as well? Uh, what are some of the, you know, sort of avenues for people mm -hmm. to take professionally if they start as a young QA? Uh, I think that's every road is possible mm -hmm. uh, because as a QA engineer, you kind of have, again, um, knowledge in both a bit of, like, you know, about the product uh, development and also you see it from the business side so you like it's it's a good really starting point if you want to maybe later to grow into business analyst or maybe in product manager or, or just a project manager it depends yeah on <laughs> how much do you like to communicate with other people um, so yeah in our company it's possible we already have like few examples of how people moved from testing into project management uh, and maybe even business analyst, I'm not sure, uh, business an ana analysis, um, uh, so yeah, and you can also just uh, grow really uh, in, you know, in your tech skills professionally because we give a lot of responsibility for our key engineers and they usually have like lots of accesses to you know different uh, tech stuff like databases servers and so on uh, it's from one hand like it's very high you know stakes and a lot of responsibility on your hands mm -hmm. but at the same time it's a great chance to improve your knowledge and skills in general and now we're you know a super cool team with smart people so join us and maybe maybe you know i've seen an interview with xenia right <laughs> and she said like that ba team is a great team like best team in the world I, and in the to company be, <laughs> to be fair i think everybody says that <laughs> yeah, yeah so we can you know 
argue a bit here. But so, yes. Yeah, Xenia, I, I know that you were uh, you, you were going to organize some debates. Yeah, so we can debate on this topic. All right, it'll be the battle of the QAs yeah. and the PAs. Well, it's fascinating, and it sounds like not only that that, that either of you uh, you ladies have the best teams in, in Parallax, but they, our product teams themselves are really some special uh, combination of talent, experience, and open communication. Um, because you know, I I got to see what uh, Vladimir said on, on the on Dimitri's podcast last mm -hmm. night about his experience of going to another company and returning to Parallect after a rather unsatisfactory experience there as far as I can understand. And he's not the only one. Uh, another guest that was on the podcast here, Nikita Solosnuk, also left um, mm -hmm. Parallect and returned because he felt like the community and the team atmosphere here was better there's some special magic. Yeah, there's some special magic among it, the people. Yeah, involved in that. So uh, the QA team is a part of that. The BA team is a part of that. We're all winning. We're all like <laughs> part of the magic. All right. Um, let's, let's pivot out of work, unless you really want to keep talking about uh, squashing bugs. We can talk a little bit about your hobby. We've got a video on our YouTube about mm -hmm. Natasha learning to fly and flying successfully an airplane. Uh, what, when did you get into flying? Is it still something you're passionate about? And how, as a risk, sort of uh, analytical risk person, I, I'm kind of surprised that flying I'm also surprised. <laughs> is, is, a, is a passion of yours. So tell us about that. Uh, so actually, I like really like traveling, as many people do. Mm -hmm. And last year was a COVID year when you know everyone shut down their like uh, countries, and you can't really travel somewhere in the world. And it it was like it started from the like beginning of the year, and somewhere in the middle of the year it was summer, and I was already like I want to fly somewhere just please, I want to just go somewhere. And I was thinking, like, if I can't, like, you know, go to other country, why can't I just fly here, in, you know, in my home country? Sure. And I just, uh, you know, Googled a bit to found, like, probably, like, the first uh, company that allows you to just fly uh -huh. on their, like, uh, airplanes. And just call them, and we just went to the airport uh, near the Minsk. Uh, and um, uh, first, uh, at first, I, I wasn't like planning, you know, to navigate, uh, you know, myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I just thought like we will take, you know, this um, trip, you know, across Minsk, just you know, to feel how it's how. It's you just wanted to ride in a plane, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. <laughs> Just, just, um, yeah. Uh, but then they like uh, told that you know we have master classes and sure. you can just uh, sit, you know, next to the pilot and you know feel yourself like a pilot. And yeah, so that that was interesting idea, which I finally decided to try also, and uh, I really liked it and. I was really lucky because the day I was flying, you know, on the airplane, 
uh, there was no wind mm -hmm. and you know it's not shaken you know, right. you know possible ways and it was super comfortable actually it feels more comfortable when you're doing it yourself rather than you're <laughs> sitting like behind yeah. on the you know on the other seat because uh, actually it's shaken you know more <laughs> right. when it's in the end of the airplane and plus you're like you're super focused on how you know how to navigate correctly because there are a lot of uh, things you should you know take a look all the time mm. like if it, how you're flying, your speed, and, and so on. Interesting. I I feel like exactly the opposite way, that, <laughs> that flying is like the least great part about traveling. Um, being at the destination is great, oh, oh, but, yeah, but getting there is, is, is terrible, and I'd much rather just sit on a train. But Do you like like long flights? No, you hate no, long no, flights? No, you hate, no. uh, I like I'm so flights. uncomfortable like, on them, it's just... Like, you know, Long flight. I can, you know, I can watch videos, and no one, nobody is going to blame you because you know there's nothing really, you know, you can do in the airplane. You can watch videos, uh, read a book, sure, and, you yeah. know, stuff like that. But I'm glad you love it, and I'm glad that you got the chance to fly and see what it was like to to fly the plane yourself. That's awesome. All right, well, thanks for coming on Ship It and Sip It. Thank you for bringing this lovely wine. And I hope you all have a great weekend. And my next guest will be Pavel Prata. We're going to talk all about Parallax transformation into a venture studio, the product lab that we have, the accelerator program. It's going to be a super show. So tune in next time and ship it and sip it. See you.